We're here coming to you from two sides of the world, the Middle East and New York, Gotham City, baby. Back at it. Pleasure to be with you. It's good to be back. Um, A lot has happened to catch you up on. Yeah. So we we released two episodes recently. I feel like we got into like a groove of two episodes every two weeks kind of thing. We did Rabbi Leader and Libby Amber Walker. We hope you enjoyed those episodes. And this week we have a special guest, Mr. Dovid Katz, who we will get to in a moment. Very famous uh, Yiddish author, Yiddishist. More about him soon. Before we get to Dovid, we just wanted to talk about a couple of things that are happening right now in the Jewish original media sphere, that being our umbrella organization. We recently started a Torah group chat, which all are welcome to join. We will add it to our link tree. But if you DM us, we'll send you a link to join. We are doing, we have weekly Parsha tidbits, a little voice note from Rabbi Shlomo Litvin, friend of the pod, friend of the brand. And every other week, we're going to be getting together on Zoom and learning a book called Derech Hashem, which is a very amazing, interesting book about the nature of God and our purpose on this earth. It's deep stuff, but we're excited and happy to get that started. Um, What else is happening? We also, as you've been hearing on our episodes, we've been shouting out Unpacking Israeli History. We essentially did an exchange of shout outs and we were finally on their show. So make sure to check out uh, the episode that came out on May 30th about Haredi soldiers. Listen to the episode. It's a very good content. If you skip to, what is it? Minute 28. Minute 28. Just listen a little bit and you'll hear a very nice ad read from our very first guest host of the Unpacking Israeli History podcast, Noam Weissman, Dr. Noam Weissman. That was really, really amazing to hear that. And what else is happening? You got, you got anything on your plate? I just want to sort of lament about the Noam Weissman thing. It was super cool to hear him talk only because I was having flashbacks of like being in my mom's office when we recorded that first episode. First interview. First interview. First interview. Yeah. First interview. Yes. Um, first guest. And no, I remember him being like, tell me about what your podcast is like in the very beginning uh, before we yeah. hit record. And now he and so many other people, thanks to you guys know what it's all about. So. Right. We really appreciated that. Cause I mean, unpacked and open door kind of answered our DM when we barely had a thousand followers and they were open to coming on the show. Like I don't think no one knew what he was coming on, but I think he had a good time and he says yeah. he, he had a good time on the very uh, ad read on their show. And, and this was before they started the podcast. So hopefully we gave him a little bit of advice and they've been doing really well. Go check it out, Unpacking Israeli History. You'll hear another ad for it soon. But now you know that there, there's a little bit behind the scenes. Things are not just happening, Stam, yeah. the two tell Jews. We're also finally catching up. Disclaimer, if it wasn't obvious for you, those of you who listen every week, some of the more recent interviews we did a little bit over a year ago, actually. We, we recorded a lot of a lot of interviews in a very small amount of time, about last April to May. And in the next two to three weeks, we're going to finally actually release everything we've had. Um, If anything sounds a little bit outdated, it's because of that. Uh, You know, we're doing our best here. This is purely for the love of the game. We're only now beginning to maybe make some money off of this whole thing. Uh, We do have a couple of sponsors. We do have people that are supporting, uh, namely, of course, Best Shot Productions, Next Gen Inc., the World Jewish Congress. But, you know, we do our best. We have day jobs. We have different content that we try to get out. So bear with us. If we do interview you and it takes a little bit of time, please bear with us. We appreciate you coming on our show. We appreciate you spending your time with us. And moving forward, now that we have a small team, actually, when we do interview new people, we're, we're going to commit ourselves to doing a better job of, of getting those out quicker. So just wanted to make that 
statement. If you do want to come on the show or you know someone that wants to come on the show, we are actually open to setting interviews as we speak. So send us an email, otd.jewishhistory at gmail.com, 1H or the two tall Jews at gmail.com. You can send us a DM on Instagram, on Twitter. Let us know if you or somebody you know wants to come on the show. Can't promise we'll say yes, but I can promise we'll consider it. <laughs> With that being said, we do, of course, give this interview, but if you wanted to add something here at the top that people won't hear during the interview or, or during the conversation with Dovid. Anything you want to add about Dovid Katz? Yeah, absolutely. So without reiterating the formal introduction we give Dovid in the episode, Dovid Katz is a brilliant linguist, historian of Eastern European Jewry, historian of the Holocaust, and a fierce combatant of the double genocide theory. He was born and raised in Borough Park, Brooklyn, uh, studied at Columbia, uh, in Oxford, and now teaches at Vilnius University in Vilnius, Lithuania. His command of the Yiddish language and linguistics and the intersection between Hebrew and Yiddish is incredible, and he has a wealth of knowledge. And yeah, it was a real pleasure to have him on. We've had a handful of scholars on the podcast, and he's by far the most published. Um, his output is really breathtaking. He also teaches online classes through the Workman Circle and Evo. Those are virtual since he lives in Lithuania. And yeah, we really hope you enjoy the episode. Totally. What I really liked about him, he had this like very old school vibe. Like he was sitting in like this like dark library office thing and like crazy hair, crazy beard. Like he had a face that was ready for winter. It's one of those interviews where like the person that we're talking to will go on and on and on. It's a little challenging for us to know when to step in. But then when you hear it back, you're like, oh, wow, like that was like really good. And, uh, you know, and at a certain point, it's, it's fine to just let them talk. I think uh, Dr. Fraim Zoroff was the best example. Yeah. I feel like we barely spoke in that, but Everything he said was incredible, yeah. yeah. They, both, both of those scholars carried the conversation nicely. I want to add to that. One of the things that, in addition to a whole host of topics that we cover with Dr. Katz, Dr. Katz, he comments on the state of Yiddish in the United States and the history of Yiddish in the United States and the intersection of assimilation and integration and the way in which Jews spoke Yiddish and how the language has evolved over time. So that was really interesting. He was also kind of funny. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. The emphasis on how nowadays the issue that a lot of Holocaust educators, especially the ones that are actually still living in Europe, have to deal with is everyone likes to speak about Poland in their revision, but there's so many other countries in Eastern Europe that Lithuania being the one that he lives in that actively revises what happened to sort of excuse themselves and say that it was a Nazi thing and they were just occupied. So, you know, bringing back the Shoah topic, which we obviously discuss a lot on the podcast, uh, rightly so, but we think that you'll enjoy it. It's a kind of like a new angle and, you know, new issues to consider. I feel like people will walk away maybe with more questions and answers, but Dovid answers emails. Yeah, but... absolutely. Um, his website has <laughs> links to defendinghistory.com and all of his classes. It's www.dovidcats.net. So all things Dovid, um, videos, audio, published materials, links to books can be found there. Anything else? Anything else you want to add about current status of the world? Anything going on in your life? How are the bagels? How are the New York bagels? Bagels are good. We're uh, preparing for a humid summer here in Gotham. Uh, it's, uh, no, things are good. Things are good. Uh, Hopefully we'll see you in the Holy Land. What? Hopefully. Hopefully soon. Okay. Hopefully soon. Um, Hopefully soon but... we'll all be there together. 
You can also catch me on two husbands in a pod. Yeah, uh, talk, did, talk a little bit about that, man. How was that experience? Um, yeah, it was fun. It was really cool doing a podcast in person. I really love, you know, God willing, one day we'll have our studio and we'll have like a nice situation. We had them on last year for Lagba Omer and we sat down. It was very Rogan-esque. Like I'm the one who came in with the prep. I had to drive up on the bus to Tzfat from Jerusalem and it's about a three and a half to four hour drive on buses. So I, you know, I had time to think about stuff that I wanted to talk about on the podcast and, um, we spoke about a wider range of things. I think the main thing that we spoke about was the topic of like what, what Zionism is, what Zionism uh, means to somebody like them who are considered Haredi. I would consider them more in the non-Zionist space, which is maybe you've never heard that term before. So I recommend you check out the conversation. It, it got a little heated at one point, but like it was all in all in good fun. And, and for the sake of conversation, we ran two hours. Like we had to literally like the last couple of minutes were like, on a camera because the the microphones just like turned off like there's like a limit or something so but awesome conversation you can check it out on youtube i think that's what they want to push to chassets in a pod and if you want to hear more of us with them together we did we did uh the lagba omar special uh last year so you have to scroll down a little bit yeah um you know hopefully you'll come and we'll, we'll join them together and and yeah, it was fun. I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I did it. We're always open to, to coming on other people's shows. So uh, if you're listening and you want to host us together over Zoom or maybe Isaac alone in New York, me alone in Israel, we'll figure it out. Yeah. We'll figure it out. Just send us a DM. So once again, here is Dr. Dovid Katz. But before that, here's a little bit about unpacking Israeli history. When many of us hear Israel, we instinctively flinch. In conservative and liberal circles alike, suddenly, it's political. It's a screaming match. Everyone throws around loaded terms like apartheid, occupation, terrorism. So either we have these massive fights, or we shut down and avoid the conversations entirely. But what if there were a better way, where you could think and discuss Israel respectfully and with depth and nuance? In Unpacking Israeli History, Dr. Noam Weissman history buff and passionate storyteller is diving into that complication. You can go back and binge all of the first two seasons and great news, season three just started. So join Noam as he explores stories like the deadly Mossad operations, the Jew who colluded with the Nazis, and a bloody massacre in Hebron 20 years before the founding of Israel. In each episode, Noam takes you into the guts of the story, what happened, why it happened, why it matters, and how each of these stories is still impacting the news today. And next time someone brings up Israel, maybe you won't duck and cover as arguments start flying around you. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. Fun fact, Noam was also our first guest ever on the show. So when you listen to the show, make sure you let him know how much you love our show as well and that we sent you there. And with that, enjoy the episode. So today, vernacular Yiddish is 100% safe in the hands of Hasidim. The study of the great literature is relatively safe in the hands of university lecturers, programs, or libraries, online programs. And if we all know where we are, it's rather simple.
Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by Jewish Original Media and On This Day in Jewish History. We are a set of Jews. We happen to be tall, and we are ready to go. Welcome to the show. As always, our show is brought to you by Best Shop Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshopproduction.com and get a quote on your next video project today. On today's show, we are privileged to have world-renowned historian, linguist, and scholar Dovid Katz, whose list of accomplishments would take the duration of this podcast to complete. Dr. Katz was born in Brooklyn. From 1978 to 1997, Dr. Katz taught Yiddish at Oxford University, where he founded and led Oxford's Yiddish Studies program. In 2001, he served as the co-founder and director of Research Vilnius Yiddish Institute at Vilnius University, and from 1999 to 2010, as professor of Yiddish language, literature, and culture. Since its founding in 2009, he has operated and edited DefendingHistory.com, a newsletter, journal, and historical outlet which seeks to preserve the memory of the Holocaust in Eastern Europe by combating its denial and distortion by individuals and governments. Dovid Katz, welcome to the show. Very happy to have you on. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Amazing. It's really exciting. So before we discuss some of that you know, scholarship that Isaac mentioned, some of the current work that you're working on, we want to talk about your upbringing, a little bit of your background. We mentioned at the top, you're from Brooklyn. Can you talk to us about how it was like growing up in Brooklyn, how it's changed over time, and, and how that's fed into, you know, who you are today? I was born in 1956 and grew up on 55th Street in Borough Park in Brooklyn. My father was a Yiddish poet and teacher. My mother, a teacher in the New York City public schools and an artist. Half of my childhood friends were the other non-Orthodox Jews of every description. And the other half were the Italian Catholics of every description. When I was, I don't remember exactly, 11, 12, 13, there was the great Hasidic invasion. And by the end of my teens, I was living on a Hasidic street where we were the last holdouts of an earlier generation. Then I guess at the age of 19 or 20, I did my junior year abroad in London and then went back to London for my doctoral studies. So in a sense, my whole adult life after university has been in Europe. So the, the Brooklyn childhood was wonderful. Borough Park is not a pretty part of Brooklyn. It has no park. It has no trees. It was all concrete. But it was a wonderful, rich diversity of people. And there was a huge excitement of being able to get on the train, the West End, at some point in its history, the T train, the B train, the D train, the West End is the permanent name, and good in New York. So going to New York and or the Lower East Side or Midtown, these were the adventures from Brooklyn. So a wonderful place to grow up in. And all of my childhood friends like me ended up leaving. And how did you find your field? When did you leave the United States? What led you to make that decision? Growing up in the household of one of the very few Yiddish writers in New York who insisted on speaking only Yiddish to his son or daughter in this case, um, the secular Yiddish movement completely failed, even in places like America, Canada, Britain, where there was no Hitler, there was no Stalin, to bring up even one street of Yiddish speakers. But we spoke only Yiddish. It wasn't exactly my career ambition as a child. But in high school, at the Yeshiva of Flatbush High School, in my sophomore year, there was an invitation by the administration to propose electives for the final year, voluntary subjects that are not part of the usual curriculum. Fifty-one of us asked for an elementary Yiddish class. There was a hysterical reaction from the Israeli-born faculty. Yiddish is not part of Jewish education. 
It's the ugly ghetto and the Jew like a sheep to the slaughter. It's against Zionism. It's the far left. It's the far right. It's too dead. It's too this. It's too that. And I started a bilingual Yiddish-English student magazine, Aleichem Sholem. But by the time I got to Columbia at age 18, I was much more interested in Yiddish linguistics, the history of the language. And in my junior year abroad, I guess I fell in love with London, with the, for me, much quieter atmosphere of University of London, the magnificent old Yiddish collections in the British Library, then the British Museum. And finally, I guess I fell in love with the Yiddish circle, the last old Yiddish writers in London in Whitechapel. One thing leads to another, finished my doctorate in London, and that started to teach it off for the same day. So that's life, you never know. That was 18 years enough. So you mentioned it, the Israeli pushback against Yiddish. Um, obviously, you faced it at a, at a year and a decade where it was already kind of strong, right? There's a famously Golda Meir came to what was the British mandate of Palestine. And she could living in a kibbutz. She didn't know Hebrew. She wasn't good at Hebrew. She would, she would speak Yiddish or English and they would get mad at her saying, you have to speak Hebrew, right? And over time, it seems like, especially nowadays, it lives mostly in the Hasidic communities. And obviously, scholars such as yourselves or people that are studying it, there is sort of a resurgence, it feels like, on our end at least on social media, from like the young Ashkenazi community. But what is sort of your opinion of, like, of the current state of Yiddish in, okay. in terms of like, where is it going? Does it have a real comeback? Did it ever really leave? Because it's still, right, okay. it's still around. What's your take on that? I'll answer with my usual honesty, which means lack of diplomacy. To start with, my first memory in life is the eve of my fourth birthday. My parents and I had moved to Tzfat in the Galil in Israel when I was three years old. It was their second attempt at Aliyah. Anyway, a day before my fourth birthday, my father and I were stopped by a policeman and the policeman lugged us into the police station explaining that my father's not allowed to talk Yiddish to me because he's a teacher employed in the Hebrew school. I began to weep uncontrollably. By the time we got to the police station, everybody was worried what happened to this kid. The chief of police gave me candy, gave my father a bottle of wine, apologized. But that evening, my father said, David, we're heading for America. Next thing I understand is Brooklyn. The short answer to your question, Yiddish, of course, met its catastrophe at the hands of the Holocaust where the native beach territory of her eight to nine million Yiddish speakers was forever destroyed. I already alluded to the fact that the secular Yiddish communities in the West failed to transmit the language as a full language. In Israel, there was a very vicious campaign in pre-state Israel, Palestine. In the 1920s and 30s, there was a unit called Yidud Miginea Safa, the battalion for the protection of the language. I recently showed their publications at a Yivo course I gave. Anyway, Yiddish writers were beaten up. Literary meetings were firebombed. Kiosks and publishing houses were firebombed. There was a massive campaign to say that Yiddish is ugly, the symbol of the effeminate, useless diaspora parasitic Jew an image quite similar to the anti-Semitic one on which it's based. We are creating a new Hebrew, Ivri Daber Ivri. By the time of the Holocaust, the Yiddish in the land of Israel was no longer considered the threat it had been, but that changed with the influx of hundreds of thousands of Yiddish speakers after the Holocaust. 
And then you had a different way of handling it with laws prohibiting a daily Yiddish newspaper, Golda Meir, in fact, was the prime minister who rescinded that law, calling it ridiculous. The late Mordechanin had to trick the government and have a newspaper with one name three days a week, let's deny it, and another name the other three days a week, Yiddish Zeitung. After all that was finished, the language was eradicated in secular Israeli circles, and to a great extent in the diaspora in the West among the mainstream. It was a new kind of Jewish mainstream was being espoused. In the case of Israel, that Yiddish has no serious literature. It's not a serious language. It was the slang for dirty words, music, and folk songs of your great-grandparents in the old country. So by the time it was no longer a serious cultural or linguistic force, sure, there are all kinds of money thrown, make yourself a theater. A small group of left-wing labor Zionists, all Zionists from the Barachovist wing of Palatzion, they were the Yiddish writers in the 20s and 30s who opposed the anti-Yiddish policies. In the 90s, I succeeded to get some memoirs from some of the best writers among them, the late Yankov Tzvi Shargel, and of course, Mordechai Tzanin and others. So after the war, Yiddish in Israel was given a tiny little corner, the Golden Ekate, a wonderful magazine sponsored by the Hood, where a few dozen aging writers could continue to publish and shut up and never talk about these issues. And there was no thought of them bringing up their kids in Yiddish. Now, from the 1960s onward, you have a counter trend. Yiddish is beautiful, just like black is beautiful. My grandparents are beautiful. A new interest in the older Yiddish left-wing, proletarian, rebellious, revolutionary literature. And you have a phenomenon. I love Yiddish. I'm saving Yiddish. Send me a check and I'm saving Yiddish. So saving Yiddish became an American industry. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to use the word bullshit. If I'm not, you'll you will, uh, Most of the Yiddish revival is bullshit. In other words, it's an expression of a positive attitude that's not worthless. That's very important to love your grandparents' language and culture instead of hating it. I'm not at all saying that bullshit is unimportant. It's bullshit from the point of view of a language. You love French, you learn French. You love Spanish, you learn Spanish. You want to be a professor of Swahili, you learn to speak Swahili, to write Swahili, to teach an advanced course in Swahili. You don't become a professor of Swahili by saying, oh, yes, it'll be comparative Judaic literatures, including translations from the Yiddish. So Yiddish in its secular circles largely went into peripheries of music, which are fine. Music and klezmer and dancing and jumping up and down and all these nice things. Meanwhile, by the 1990s, by the early aughts, people were seeing a phenomenon that nobody expected. Hasidic Yiddish has grown into a language of close to a million people. Now, many of them young and of childbearing age, a separate civilization most modern Jews don't begin to understand not least its internal diversity. They publish dozens of magazines and books a year in a beautiful, rich Yiddish. It's not identical by far to the sterile, 
artificial university Yiddish taught in some courses. Today, it's much more a continuation of 1960s, 70s, 80s, general Yiddish before that last generation of people who came to maturity before the Holocaust died out. So today, vernacular Yiddish is 100% safe in the hands of Hasidim. The study of the great literature is relatively safe in the hands of university lecturers, programs, their libraries, online programs. And if we all know where we are, it's rather simple. Right. That's interesting. Well, wow. thank you for taking us down that path. I just have one comment. and Isaac's going to take the next question. Uh, it's interesting how we just did recently did a book club on the Rebbe by Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, the biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And there's a point where the Algaminer, the magazine, which started out as Yiddish only, the Rabbi Jacobson, who started it, went to the Rebbe and he asked him, you know, do you think it's worth publishing in Yiddish? It's a dying language. He said this in the 70s. And he said, 20 years ago, they said that it was a dying language. And in 20 years, they'll still be saying it's a dying language. Print in Yiddish. The Jacobson family has done wonders. I was very honored for six or seven years to write a weekly column for the Yiddish Algemeine Journal, the years that the editor was the young, brilliant Yud Yud Jacobson. YY, I think you call him in English circles. The youngest son of the founder, Gershon Jacobson. Um, Interesting. Lubavitch maintains Yiddish much less than what we Litvaks call the real Hasidim, the Southerners, the Satmar, Bel, Ger, Bobov, Vishnitz, and so on. Nevertheless, in certain Chabad circles in Crown Heights and elsewhere, in certain revived circles in Eastern Europe, not only does Yiddish survive, but Lithuanian Yiddish survives, and that's very close to the standard language of the secularists unlike most folk in Yiddish, which is Southern. Speaking of Lubavitch, we also have with its non-Yiddish speaking branches a question. If X, if you, some hypothetical follower of Lubavitch, cares enough, does he or she not want to understand the tape of the last Lubavitch Rebbe speaking? In Yiddish. Absolutely in Yiddish. You sort of touched on this. The individual words that have sort of seeped into, I guess, more into American culture, like schmuck, kibbutz, etc. Is that a continuation or the offshoot of the way in which the language changed in the 60s, this idea that you just touched upon? I don't think so. Most of those words came in in the immigrant communities, like the Lower East Side of New York. So words like schmuck simply survived, whereas others, like next door, or neighbor, did not survive in wider circles. Interesting how... um, I noticed certain politicians have recently started using schmuck in its original Yiddish sense, which meant a fool, someone naive who can be easily bamboozled. That's a little different from schmuck as an evil person, you know, who did Mm. something bad to you. So, yes, this is not really part of the story of Yiddish. It's part of something else, that large and influential immigrant communities leave a small number of words in the general language. This happens universally. We Jews like to think it's a special phenomenon or people who talk a lot about Yiddish want to say that it proves something about the influence of Yiddish in America, that five or 10 emotive words made it into English doesn't prove anything to me other than the five colorful words made it in and why not? So 
switching gears a little bit. So we want to talk about defending history. Can you speak about the factors that led to its founding, day-to-day operations, as well as the undercurrent of right-wing historical revisionism that has continued to plague Europe for some time? Yes. Well, I stumbled into this because when I accepted the professorship in Vilnius in 1999, I remember I couldn't understand why I'm being treated so well and invited to all these wonderful diplomatic and government evenings and banquets. And finally, one of my Lithuanian new friends said to me, David, you don't realize what a bonanza this is. They finally found a foreign Jewish professor who never talks about the Holocaust. And people have have shown me videos of conferences. When I was asked something about the Holocaust in 98, 99, I would say, I have colleagues who are engaged in that. I do Yiddish before the war. I don't do Holocaust. My whole field was only Yiddish before the war. One of the reasons I moved to, I guess I'll say a few words about my journey before I answer your question as I would today as an academic in the political arena. My journey for Yiddish studies included Yiddish dialectology. In the 90s, I had been mounting expeditions to Lithuania, Belarus, northeastern Ukraine, eastern Ukraine, Latvia, northeastern Poland, looking for the last Litvaks, people who are 80 or 90 in the Lithuanian lands. By the way, in, in eastern Belarus, that's mostly Chabad families. In any case, then I decided in 99, after a year of visiting professor at Yale, to turn down 10 years at Yale, my late mother never forgave me. Can you imagine? They offer him 10 years of Yale and he goes to Vilna. My luck. I must have done something to deserve this. But she was absolutely right from her point of view. So in Vilnius, I continued interviewing thousands of Lithuanian Jews and East European Jews. They were my teachers about the Holocaust. So to stick to Lithuania for a moment, they taught me that the Lithuanian nationalists for whom streets are now named, started to murder Jews before the first German soldier came in that last week of June 1941. In other words, from June 22nd, 41, when Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union started, Barbarossa, the real beginning of the genocidal phase, that in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and Ukraine, local so-called anti-communist heroes started to butcher Jewish men, women, and children in a way the Germans themselves had never done. The Germans got there and quickly stopped these middle of the street beheadings and all the rest of it, and quickly got the locals organized to do a mass genocide for the first time of millions. One million Jews were murdered in the second half of 1941. So no one is angry at descendants of these people or these countries today, that's not the issue. The issue is that the murderers have been made into heroes in a new complicated narrative that has been sold to the West and to many prestigious Jewish organizations in America, Israel, and elsewhere. And this brings me to your main question. In the 20th century, Holocaust denial was very easy to counter. David Irving or someone else said, it's not true, it's a lie, the camps didn't exist. Okay, bring thousands of witnesses, tens of thousands of witnesses. The Spielberg Project wonderfully brought thousands of state witnesses. It was easy to counter. From Eastern Europe, we have a new revisionism that's very difficult to counter. It doesn't deny a single death. 
it is being propagated by American allies, by the new members of the European Union and NATO in Eastern Europe, in other words, the anti-Russian countries. So to begin with, on January 1st, Ukrainians had a big parade in central Kiev to mark the birthday of Stepan Bandera, a Hitlerist a Nazi Ukrainian leader whose groups murdered hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles. But the Western media wasn't allowed to mention it because an atmosphere has been created that if somebody mentions the Bandera parade, it means that you're criticizing something in the perfect democracy called Ukraine. So in recent years, Ukraine has erected statues, um, given new street names, making Bandera, Chukhevich, and many, many other local Hitlerists into heroes. Why are they all heroes? They all were anti-Soviet. That's true. And that brings us to another uncomfortable, inconvenient truth about the Holocaust. The genocidal phase of the Holocaust started in June 41 with Operation Barbarossa and this invasion. Before that, there were horrific atrocities, mass murder, concentration camps, not genocide. During this period, from 41 till 44 or 45, it ended on different dates in different places. In Eastern Europe, the only people fighting the Nazis were the Soviet Union. Okay, so history is not, you know, neat. We hate Stalin, we hate Stalinism, but in those four years, the only hope a Jew had of survival was the Soviet Union. So let's say, take Lithuania. 96.4% of Lithuanian Jews were murdered, the highest percentage in Europe of any larger community. The three Baltic states had percentages, all three in the high 90s. So in Estonia, with very few Jews, it was 99%. In Latvia, about 97%. In any case, the 4% or so who survived, how did they survive? Over 90% of the 4%, if that makes sense, fled to the Soviet Union the first few days. They were the ones who understood what's coming, the flight survivors. And they are the Jews and their descendants today who are the living Jewish communities in these countries. Second the Jews who fled the ghetto to join up with the Soviet partisans in the forest. I just saw on the internet today, there was some huge celebration of Sutskava as the Houdini of the Vilna ghetto. Sutskava, the young Yiddish poet in the Vilna ghetto, was rescued by the Soviet government that sent a plane to the forest to pick him up and take him to Moscow. So the history is inconvenient. So the scholars in these countries and the politicians from the early 90s came up with a new model of World War II. It's called double genocide. It says that the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany are equal committers of genocide, Soviet genocide, and it had many Jewish participants because the Soviet Union was a non-ethnically, racially limited society. People of all races were among Soviet officials everywhere. That you can't take away from them. So anyway, the new model said that Soviet genocide was worse, came first, it came in the 30s with the Ukrainian famine. And in the early 1990s, the definition of genocide was redone legally in all these countries to include deportation to Siberia. Okay, so for example, if in town X in Lithuania, 
5% of the town was sent to Siberia, and 90% of the 5% eventually returned after serving sentences, that is the same as 100% of the Jewish men, women, and children being butchered in a day and put in a hole. Now, I'm not taking away the severity of the other crimes, but they're not the same. So this movement of double genocide came to include the idea that all these committers of murder in the Holocaust were also heroes, because many were also anti-Soviet heroes. So suddenly every perpetrator becomes a hero. Every hero could be a perpetrator. So my personal involvement started in a big way on May 5th, 2008, when two armed police came looking for two of my best friends, both women then in their 80s, Rojo Margolis, who passed away in 2015, and Fania Brantovsky. They were both Vilna ghetto inmates who escaped and became heroines in the anti-Nazi war effort with the Jewish partisans who were working with the Soviet partisans. They were the ones fighting Hitler. So the accusation was that because the partisans in the forest, if they found the German soldier, they killed him. They didn't have a court in the forest. They didn't have lawyers. They didn't have prisons. They didn't obey the Geneva Conventions. They're therefore equal criminals. So I can send you the same head of the History Commission in Vilnius, who is the darling of the American, British, Canadian, and Israeli foreign ministries, says everybody of them was both a criminal and a hero, the same person in one circumstance. So the Holocaust and Soviet crimes are being leveled into a postmodernist mush where everybody's a criminal and everybody's a hero and everything is equal. And in June 2008, the Prague Declaration was issued by several dozen members of the European Parliament at a conference in Prague with the word same five times. All European nations have to overhaul textbooks to teach students that Nazi and Soviet crimes are the same, that there must be the same recognition of victimhood, et cetera, et cetera. So I very quickly stood up for my dearest friends, the Holocaust survivors in Vilna. Um, I was told by a year later that I would never work again anywhere as an academic if I didn't, if I continue to publish articles, but this was 2010 to be more accurate, when I published my first articles in the Jewish Chronicle in London, the Guardian in London, and the Irish Times in Dublin. And my head of department at Vilnius University told me, Dovid, I'm very sorry, you've now published these anti-Lithuanian articles in the far-left Putinist press, where your contract will not be renewed. In other words, you're fired, although it's not technically fired. And there's been a massive campaign to prevent me having any university position, and I've made peace with it. I teach online. But the battle over history is raging, but because of the East-West politics, nobody has the guts to mention it. They're afraid they'll be called Putinists. So it's right. this ridiculous position that the truth about the Holocaust is in now, that if I speak up, I'll be labeled a Putin. I'm not a Putinist. I hate Putin. But these countries are absolutely wrong in their Holocaust revisionism. 
And the American government is absolutely wrong to pass over it in silence. This year, to give you an example about the European Union, this year, Lithuania's second city, that was the interwar capital, Kovna, Kaunas in Lithuania, is the capital of European culture. Great, fine. So our, our journal, DefendingHistory.com, has been campaigning for one thing, not to take away the honor from Kaunas, to ask the government and the municipality, the mayor's office in Kovna, to start taking down the dozens of street names, plaques, statues honoring the murderers. The puppet prime minister in Hitler's puppet government has a lecture hall and a sculpture in his honor at the University of Kaunas, Vitatas Magnus University. Um, and no American, British, or Israeli diplomat nowadays will mention this. It's against current political policy. So that's the limb, the corner I've painted myself into, but I will not relent as long as there's a breath in me. I am loyal to the thousands. They're now gone. The Lithuanian Jews who right. taught me what happened and that the truth must never, never be perverted. Well. Everything that you've been discussing now would go under the definition of the double genocide, correct? The double genocide theory? Yes. And how would you no. define that? Double genocide is the theoretical foundation to equal genocide. Mm -hmm. The rest of it is what scientists or mathematicians call corollaries or things that follow. If okay. there was two equal genocides and somebody was an enemy of genocide one, then that person is a hero as well. In other words, that's the basis. But very many of the corollaries are now propounded without reference to the underlying theory. In 2012, exactly a decade ago, uh, a London-born Australian professor, Danny Ben Moshe, a wonderful filmmaker, he made a film uh, rewriting history about all this. He and I uh, went, he and I created a counter declaration to the Prague Declaration called the 70 Years Declaration on the 70th anniversary of Lande. Guess what? In a couple of weeks, we succeeded to get 70 parliamentary signatures on our. So, but the point of our tiny accomplishment was we stalled out the double genocide movement's main thrust in the European Parliament of proclaiming double genocide to be the unified history that everyone has to have. What we did not succeed at all to do was to stop the corollaries that were simply detached from double genocide, like honoring all, maybe you've heard there's a very sensational new book out in America by Sylvia Foti. Um, the Nazi's granddaughter, I think it's called, where she found out that her grandfather, who she was brought up in Chicago to believe was a freedom fighter against the Soviets, was the murderer of several thousand innocent Jewish civilians in northwestern Lithuania. Um, the fellow from whom she learned that, by the way, is a defending history uh, writer. We should promote this book. It's a good book. It's an important book to promote. And uh -huh. also, however, to talk about what is the result of agreeing. The book is about her grandfather was called Noreika. So Noreika mm -hmm. was this brutal murderer. So this book reveals that. It's important for that reason. But now let's come to another point. There's a huge plaque uh, for Noreika on the Lithuanian National Library of Sciences. There's a huge stone honoring Noreika on Vilnius's main boulevard. 
Kaunas is full of narrated shrines. So following from a, a positive mention of the book is why doesn't anyone in America, including the president's Holocaust representative and all the rest of it, say one word about the need to remove these shrines um, glorifying Holocaust perpetrators on the beautiful streets of the capital of an ally, of the European Union NATO ally. So that second problem comes with the book. In other words, it's not enough to say, ah, there's an American woman who told the truth. That's wonderful. She deserves full credit. But the book is a stepping stone. What about policy regarding the honoring of these people? So it is all very interconnected. I have to mention that a vast budget is being spent on Jewish, Yiddish, Hebrew, all kinds of Jewish stuff to bring important Jewish people to these countries for photo ops and medals and honors and grants and all the rest of it in return for silence on these issues. Um, I mentioned this Noreika, who is the subject of the new book in America. So the major plaque honoring Noreika is on the facade of the Lithuanian National Library of Sciences. It's about one minute's walk from the cathedral in the center of Old Vilna. But if you Google its name, it's a, you'll look it up, uh, the Wawrowski uh, Library, it is mentioned only in one connection, that it's one of the libraries that supports the new digitization of the pre-war YIVO collection. So the digitization of YIVO's collection is a fantastic thing that all these books and manuscripts are up on the internet for the benefit of us dozen or so folks who are obsessed with these things. But nobody dares mention that this particular library credited because it's on a list of supporting organizations of digitization honors a major Holocaust war criminal on the front of its bill. So we need to speak up about these things even when it's not convenient. Wow. So we're sitting with Dr. David Katz, historian, linguist, author, and educator. You can find all his work at his website, davidkatz.net, as well as the ongoing historical initiative that we've been speaking about, Defending History. What role should the Holocaust play in our everyday political discourse? That is, we see so many Nazi or Holocaust analogies nowadays. How can we better educate people to realize the uniqueness of the Holocaust and how truly unnecessary it is to compare any tragedy or negative circumstance? To those events. You're absolutely right. Uh, I turned on the news today and I heard the word genocide a dozen times in a half hour and a piece about the upcoming Olympics in, uh, in China, the, the, the Winter Olympics. Now, whatever dreadful crimes against humanity are being committed, it's not genocide. So there has been a terrible inflation of language. And the inflation of language has meant that everything is genocide. And if everything is genocide, nothing is genocide. And if everything is genocide, then everything is the Holocaust, because the Holocaust is genocide, okay? The Holocaust is nothing but the worst manifestation of genocide in human history. We can talk about that another day, why it's different than all the other genocides, where a mighty world army went hundreds of miles outside its borders, no territorial dispute nothing like that, to murder every man, woman, and child of a certain race, religion, ethnicity. Real genocide does not include 
the chance given to somebody to alter something. Like in the Middle Ages, if a Jew agreed to become baptized, he or she wouldn't be killed. It's not genocide. It was mass murder. It was other horrific things. Um, so there needs to be an awareness raising campaign to stop using these words that express, thankfully, very rare occurrences in human history for the everyday. I happen to be a born vegetarian, but when I hear that there's a Holocaust being committed against cows and against chickens, of course, I'm horrified. It's got nothing to do with it. But where our issues are related, if our major Jewish organizations, leaders, politicians, and the heads of Western countries and so on are coming into a phase now, right now in the 2020s, why the 2020 is important, the loss of the last Holocaust survivors who came to any age of memory before the massacre, two, the amazing usefulness of the Holocaust to the far left and the far right and to the right, to the extreme anti-Semitic nationalists and to all sorts of groups. That's a second phenomenon. Um, bearing those two in mind, we come to our issue today how actual historic revision is being passed over in silence by the great Holocaust museums, professors, and so on. They themselves, or we ourselves as a people, are contributing to this. Give you an example. The United States president's uh, head of uh, Holocaust affairs visited Vilnius. Of course, I understand she needed all the wonderful photo ops and the glorious banquets, but not one word about the need to take down state-sponsored shrines and so on and so forth. Not one word about double genocide revisionism. Why? That's not her fault directly. It's because it's U.S. policy to take the side of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Ukraine, Poland, anything and to bring as much baloney on board in Jewish events to cover it if necessary. So I think very courageous journalists need one way or another to bring these issues into the mainstream. There's been a scandal in France, a new center honoring the great philosopher Emmanuel Levinas was established in Kovna in Kaunas against the wishes of his living son, who made clear that he, his father would not have wanted such an institute called the Levinas Center in Kovna, where most of the family was butchered by the locals, now called heroes. Now, outside France, it's been next to impossible to get any mainstream publication to mention this. And coming in the year of Kaunas as capital of European culture, this is obviously a PR Jewish toy. People can be shown the new Levinas Centras with the Jewish name Levin, Levinas. I was shocked that a usually very, very accurate report reporter for JTA covering the new Levinas Center this week didn't even mention that his brother had protested in a major French newspaper and in a major French Jewish newspaper. Now there's enormous pressure on these people not to do anything to embarrass our allies in Eastern. So if embarrassing an ally, if we disagree on something has become beyond the pale, we are bearing the possibility of the memory of the Holocaust and the truth being carried forward. If the Holocaust is worth so little that any small comfort and convenience issue trumps it, 
where it, it is a lost cause. When I say lost cause, what I mean is that, yes, you'll be able to find out what happened, but the new Holocaust revisionism makes facts unimportant. It says accurately, if you look at Stalin and Stalinism and Soviet crimes from 1917, when the Soviet Union was created to 1991, when it fell apart, the number of people killed is greater than the number of people Hitler killed from 1939 to 1945. In other words, without even changing facts, the history is being so utterly distorted because there are very few people, sadly, willing to defend history now as a value worth defending. Right. We have a big fight in front of us. Another consequence, at least in the U.S. side, has been the, you know, the awful Holocaust education or Shoah memory education, whatever we want to call it. Here, I'm looking at a stat. Only 18 states in the U.S. require Holocaust education. And looking at Europe, about according to a CNN poll from 2018, I think there's a more recent one. But in 2018, one in 20 Europeans never even heard of the Holocaust. So obviously, I'm sure these things are as a result of everything that we've been discussing today. Um, definitely has an impact. And as you mentioned, a lot of the Holocaust survivors nowadays don't have real living memory as they did maybe 20 years ago. A lot of them were either very young when all these things happened or very close second generation. So what can we do to improve Holocaust education in the U.S. and Europe, but maybe just start with the U.S.? And what, what does this world look like 20 years from now when there's really no survivors left? What's ahead of us? Holocaust education is very important, but accurate Holocaust education is even more important because a lot of Holocaust education today is not technically inaccurate. It tells part of the story. It tells this story about the Germans and the Austrians, which is completely accurate, but it does not tell the truth about the genocide breaking out in these East European countries several days before the Germans got there. It misses telling the story that nations that are now allies were a major part of this. And why is that important? Because that means that the Holocaust can happen anywhere. It can happen in any country. Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia had a magnificent record of nonviolence toward Jews. In the case of Lithuania, 600 years of non-violence relative to any other place. How did it happen that on Monday morning, the 23rd of June, 1941, thousands of young men, the top young high school students, put on a white armband and started butchering? So the real Holocaust education has to teach the real things that happened locally in different places. Holocaust education now is very heavily slanted in the direction of the huge camps like Auschwitz and Germany and Austria alone. So one big issue is the accuracy of Holocaust education. A second issue, and this may not sound very intellectual, but I believe it, when issues come up every month as they do, I just mentioned to you the Levinas Center that came up in Kaunas. I mentioned Kaunas as the capital of European culture. I mentioned the Prague Declaration of 28. I mentioned our uh, response in, in 2012. All these skirmishes happening are the real tools of education because we see how the truth is so easily shunted aside 
when something quote more important more uh, quote unquote more important comes along and this takes us to the next point as time goes on daily life and new important stuff will on a daily basis make all of history seem irrelevant and israel is a special case israel needs uh, east european votes in the council of europe and the european union and nato and in the united nations um, in the case of the United States, Canada, and Britain, it would be much easier to disagree with, although Israel could also do it. One great Israeli ambassador, the late Chenev the Apka, who sadly died young, um, in 2009, when I made an evening in Tel Aviv for one of those two women accused of being a war criminal, uh, he came from Riga to this evening to speak, and we have on our YouTube page, his speech is always first but that's an exception sorry um i don't know we haven't really spoken about it but polish revisionism and polish laws against holocaust education that we see nowadays israel has pushed back against that as yes. well there's been a lot of yes. issues with so polish. polish revisionism uh if you read their laws they're ugly they're anti-semitic they're primitive nationalist they do not rewrite the history of what happened for the simple reason that Poland was invaded on September 1st, 1939 by Hitler, who went on to kill millions of Poles. Um, so it's not the same grade of revisionism as further east in the Baltics or in, in, in uh, to the east of the Molotov-Ribbentrop line, where the Nazis are to this day regarded as the liberators. So the Polish example, I did write an article comparing it. It's an awful example of a crackdown on freedom and freedom of speech by trying to criminalize opinions. That's disgusting in a democracy. Secondly, um, it tries to uh, put beyond the pale criticism of Polish collaborators, okay? And it's written in a very anti-Jewish spirit. But you know, when you look at the facts, um, the, that Polish law in the fine print also makes it illegal to worship this bandera, uh, the Nazi who killed hundreds of thousands of Jews and Poles. So right. Polish revisionism was easy for Israel, America, and others to critique, whereas the Baltic uh, case is rather different. It's, that's the kind of, of very cunning and complex double genocide revisionism that would never be so stupid as to pass such a law. The closest the Baltics came, if I take Lithuania, where I happily lived 21 years, in 2010, Lithuania passed a law criminalizing the opinion that one of the two genocides was not genocide. So if I say, I think Soviet crimes were horrific, abominable crimes against humanity, mass murder, but in my personal opinion, not genocide in the way Nazi crimes were genocide. I could go to prison for two years in Lithuania, um, three years in Hungary, five years in Latvia, and 10 years in Ukraine, our wonderful new bastion of friendship and democracy. Now, in real life, they'll never arrest me and allow me to become a spectacle. Well, what did it mean in everyday life? It meant that a young Lithuanian scholar or ambitious journalist, teacher, artist, politician, or whatever, would never risk ruining his or her uh, career possibility of a degree and a job by going against the law. 
Okay, it put it beyond the pale, and in popular parlance, it put it in the category of anti-Putin law. So Putin is used here as the book. So uh, in other words, during the Holocaust, the Soviet Union from 41 to 45 was in alliance with Great Britain and the United States and the Allies. That's the fact of history. So we've mentioned the role of anti-Semitism with regard to the laws that were passed in Poland. And as a part of a recurring conversation here on the Two Tall Jews show, we'd like to bring up the word anti-Semitism. And being that you're both a historian and a linguist, we wanted to get your opinion on it. First of all, we all need to understand what a relative term it is and how differently it's used in different countries. So let me get Lithuania and Eastern Europe out of the way to start with. From my first day as a professor in Vilnius in September 99, Lithuanians, very intelligent, kind, generous, tolerant Lithuanians who became friends, colleagues, the students, mentors, would say to me the following. David, you have to understand, we love you. We love American Jews. We love British Jews. We love Israelis above everyone. They are the symbol for us to fight for your independence and to win. We hate the local Jews because they are so unpatriotic. The local Jews think that our national heroes murdered their families and that the damn Soviets, the communists, the Russians saved them. Okay, so it's anti-Semitism based on narrative. The best American analogy I can think of, and it's not a perfect analogy, I hate African-Americans who have a different narrative of American heroes in the early decades or centuries of the United States of America. If he has a different opinion on Washington, Jefferson, and whoever, that guy is an enemy of America. So that's basically that kind of anti-Semitism, okay? It was fascinating. These same people, many of them, the younger ones, rushed to visit Israel to study, and they wanted what they believed was the great Jewish genius, and they only hate the local Jews. So that is one very important aspect. And then coming back to my initial point, I mean, this point was only relevant, I understand, in Eastern Europe. In the West, anti-Semitism is often masked by the fact that in countries like the United States, we grow up with the ideal of equality, with role models of Jewish people in very high places in all the different fields of endeavor, the arts, the sciences. And it was only a matter of time before various of the old demons would come out of that genie bottle again. There's an old Yiddish expression, you only have to scratch him and it'll come out. So-and-so has been anti-Semite. Um, What's the expression? Oh, we got to hear it in the Yiddish, in the original. So there are different kinds of anti-Semitism, economic envy, there is cultural envy, very often linked to inferiority complexes of others in their groups, okay, that I'm, I'm doing badly and look at these guys. But there are also older strands. The older strands can be residual religious. Look, those of us who grew up in tolerant Christian-dominated countries are very lucky. It was from the 
Enlightenment of the 17th and 18th century, John Locke and David Hume, the separation of church and state. But there is a strain of Christianity, unfortunately manifest in the book of Matthew and in other essential Christian writings, that when the Jews were asked which of the two prisoners should be freed for Passover, they not only wanted it to be uh, Barabbas, the crook, instead of Jesus Christ, but they also, this sentence was probably added centuries later, may the sin be upon us and our children. It has a certain ring in the original Syriac Aramaic. So there will be a forever religious possibility for revival of these ancient hates. And then we come to something very 21st century and modern. And that is, in my view, the ease in our age of the internet and Twitter with which conspiracies enter any intelligent reader or viewer's mind as being something to think about. In other words, every Schlemiel, every Schmendrick, every Dreck, every nobody can suddenly become some big political theoretician if he or she is popular on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube, or other mm -hmm. social media. Now, when we come to the role of conspiracies, it becomes very easy to say that they say it's climate change. I say it was a ray from a satellite supported by some rich Jewish cabal to create a weather catastrophe in California <laughs> in order to promote a clean energy or climate change or whatever type of political program. So the ease with which conspiracy theories spread, coupled with historical Jewish brilliance in finance, banking, makes it a very convenient target. If you add into the noxious, toxic mix issues about the state of Israel and how the problems of Palestinians and others are presented in the media, again, immediately the word genocide, the word this, the word Holocaust. Right. Second, and this is perhaps related to our earlier discussion on Yiddish, although in a, in a more oblique way, the hundreds of thousands becoming millions of Hasidim who openly espouse complete separation from the modern world. They are feeding into this more than we realize, in part because we modern so-called secular Jews have our own hang-ups with how our great-great-grandparents looked and spoke and believed. All of these elements, Israel, Palestinians, military might, secretive groups in America that have their own language, Jewish prominence in banking and the number, you have to listen to the other side to understand it, okay? In the case of the Holocaust, our website Defending History has hundreds of translations of articles in Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, Ukrainian, to help people understand what the other side is thinking. It can help an American student of anti-Semitism, don't get hooked on it, but listen to one tape on something like David Duke's website. And when you hear, hooked, please. <laughs> yeah, don't go there, but to hear one, you Research. hear his rolling out the names of heads of the Federal Reserve. And if it's Ben Bernanke, I forgot, there's a second name that's never mentioned. It's Ben, initial 
Bernanke and that middle initial is something oh, no. like Shalom or Laser or whatever. <laughs> Very important to understand anti-Semitism to listen to a half hour or hour of one of their theoreticians yeah. to be able to take it apart and expose it right. for what right. it is, an un-American hatred of success and hard work. Absolutely. But just quickly, I want to hone in on the word itself, anti-Semitism, and because it has a rich history of being anti-Semitic and sort of it was created with strong anti-Jewish intention. So are you a proponent of changing the word to something less anti-Jewish, such as anti-Jewish racism or Judeophobia, or should we just stick with anti-Semitism? I personally have a weakness for anti-Jewish racism because racism is becoming, whether we wanted it or not, the cover term that covers most of what we're talking about. And anti-Semitism is such a complicated term. In the history of Yiddish course I just gave at Yivo, I had to discuss that in the early 18th century, um, anti-Jewish or Jew-hating books came out focused on Yiddish that the Yiddish language is a language created to cheat Christians and to insult Jesus Christ and the Virgin Mary. Then in the 1780s, the Berlin Enlightenment that created us modern Jews who are modern Americans, Germans, whatever, but of the Jewish religion, picked up on that. And it said, hey, they're right. We have to speak like everybody, look like everybody. Then there'll be no more anti-Jewish feelings. Then we had the anti-Yiddish feelings of of the early Hebrew movement, and many Jews in America today of the mainstream are very much against Haredim and have every kind of legend about Haredim, in part, I would argue, because it reminds us of our own immediate ancestors, our own great-great-great-great-grandparents. You don't have to go back further than that, no matter how young you are today looked like them, spoke like them, and had most of their beliefs. And God gave the five books in dressing separately and speaking our own language. So Jews have so many hangups about other kinds of Jews being a very splintered people, as we are. That's where we are now. Yes, we have to take where we are. But I personally, I may be prejudiced by the following that so many scholars of anti-Semitism, professors of anti-Semitism, have been thrilled to accept a junket or a grant or a photo op from one of these East European countries in return for never mentioning those topics again, that I have become very suspicious of the field of anti-Semitism studies. So I think that it's a very right time for one of you guys or maybe both of you to write a book on it's time to say goodbye to the word anti-Semitism. Did we remove the hyphen? I personally, in defending history, we removed the hyphen about a decade ago. We were encouraged to do so by a few very old and honest scholars of anti-Semitism. So yes, in other words, it's a whole that's separate from its parts. In other words, a word. It's not right. two words with a hyphen. And so hyphenated right. things don't work. So anti-Jewish is something, but anti-Jewish racism is one of the very few formulations at present that hits where we want it to hit. It is no better than being anti-Black, anti-gay, anti-Oriental, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim. Let's at least get to that point again. Right. And 
now I say anti-Semitism, ah, ah, but Jews are not a race. And suddenly we're down some rabbit hole of our Jews are race. It's not a race. It's a this, it's a that. And after I, in my 21 years of living in Vilnius, heard anti-Semitism only in that way that I mentioned to you. We love you, the American Jews. We just hate the local Jews. What are they? Are they anti-Semites? It doesn't cover it, okay? They are racist against a minority in their own country. And for better or worse, they don't count us as members of the group they hate, just as the Nazis didn't count the Karaites. They excluded the Karaites. It's an exclusion. So racism is the strongest word around, and we should embrace it. I once had a big argument on this with a representative of the Holocaust Museum who was on one of his trips to Vilnius to accept medals and to not say a word about the honoring of perpetrators and and all the rest of it. And he said, no, 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 Jews are not a race. It's not racism, it's anti-Semitism. And anyway, people were looking at each other in the audience. Ah, so our racism is okay. And they weren't even thinking about Jews. They were thinking about people they hate. They hate gypsies, Roma. They hate Tatars. They hate Russians. They hate whatever. Ah, the Holocaust was not racism. No, the Holocaust was the worst episode of racism in human history. So if your resume and current work is any indication, you're by far the most productive scholar we've interviewed. Do you find time to explore interests outside of your profession? Or do you really devote your life to your work and field? I have developed hobbies that are very much related to my profession. For example, in Vilna, I became a collector of minor antiquities of all kinds of Jewish things from the 19th century. And I have a little mini museum on the website, a mini virtual museum of old Jewish Vilna. So in a way, for me, it's a hobby not work to go every week when I'm in Vilnius to the flea market or the old stuff, the junk market, whatever you call it, and look for what I look like and enjoy the three hours among totally different people whom I never see any other time in life. That kind of thing is very relative. Um, Yeah, so I don't think I currently have other hobbies. I fall asleep late at night to reruns of 1960s and 70s television programs like Perry Mason that I hadn't seen for 40 years. And I said, wow, it gets my mind off everything. And it's so brilliantly constructed to end in an hour. Nice. Well, we're wrapping up. Here's our last question. We, we asked this to all our guests. Uh, again, we thank you so much. Yeah. Make sure to check out Dr. David Katz on his website, davidkatz.net and the initiative defendinghistory.com, correct? Defendinghistory.com. Yeah, thank you. Of course. So Dr. Katz, if you had a gigantic billboard, billions of people can see, what would it say and why? I would have two separate billboards now. One would be to all Jews, at least Jews of Ashkenazic East European origin, love thyself. Begin to love your heritage too. It will do no damage to religion or to Israel or to Hebrew or to the day school or to anything else if you begin to appreciate the wealth of Yiddish in the last thousand years of your own family. I realize that was way too much for the billboard, but that would be one set of ideas. The second set of ideas is fight for the truth of history. It's worth fighting for. Defend history even if there's always some everyday issue the bad guys can use to trumpet 
in your relative scheme of what of importance some daily things. Fight for the truth. It can be some little truth in your life, in your family. Don't be afraid to defend history. Don't go with our mass culture of the best blogger, the best tweeter, suddenly fooling us with some conspiracy theory. No, no, no. History is sacred and it feeds into all the current sanctity. So defend it with pride, with pleasure. Great. So once again, we hope to have you on again. Thank you so much. For I would love to. Giving of your time. You've made me think so much today. I really appreciate it. Oh, love thank that. you. When you do something every day, you forget what the hell you're doing. We'll, uh, we'll definitely be in touch with regards to when we release this and hope to have you on again soon. Wonderful. Yes. And I hope we'll meet in real life before you know it. Oh, we would love that. We would love to come to Lithuania. Or to Wales. Yes, you join me here. Yeah. So on the Holy Land. All right. All right. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to the Two Tall Jews Show. We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on Instagram at Two Tall Jews Show and Twitter at Two Tall Jews. And you can also find our umbrella page. Jewish Original Media on Instagram and the very famous On This Day in Jewish History on Instagram as well and on Twitter as at Daily Jewish. You can find a link to support us on any of our link trees on Instagram or Twitter or even YouTube. Any and all donations are appreciated and will help in development of all of our content, all of our projects. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening and take care.